Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I've got a great stream with a great guest that I think you're really going to enjoy. So I wanted to go ahead and bring on Seamus Coglin. He is, of course, the creator of Freedom Tunes and a regular over at Timcast. Seamus, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for for having me. Um, I I was very glad to do this. You did my podcast a few months ago, and I I remember I met uh, Aaron on Timcast about a year ago at this yeah. point. Yeah, and a lot of what you were saying really resonated with me because I think that on Timcast we do have a wide variety of guests, which is great, and I think that's why the show works. But a lot of the more conservative guests tend to be more in the mainstream. And that's not so much by design as it is the fact that there are more public figures available with those political leanings. Part of what's great about Timcast is we do bring so many people on who have views outside of the, the status quo. And I remember when I was having a conversation with you on the show and then after the show, I thought, okay, I love what this guy uh, is doing. And We've been talking about doing each other's podcasts since then, and so I'm glad that I'm, I'm finally getting a chance to do yours. No, man. I, yeah, I really appreciate that. Of course, there's a great opportunity, and I, I was surprised as anyone when I got that first invite over to TimCast, but it was great meeting you at that first episode. And like you said, both uh, had a good time, so I think it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, but before we get started, actually, you know, I don't think I've ever really heard your story. Could you oh, tell man. everybody a little bit? Kind of, did were you always interested in animation? Was that a passion? Were you a comedian growing up, or is these things you kind of grew into? Yeah, absolutely. So I always loved animation. I always wanted to be a cartoonist and an animator, but I was always strongly interested in politics. And as a kid, I very much wondered which path am I going to pick? I knew I wanted to do animation. I also knew that I wanted to change the culture or at least try to do what I could to change the culture because basically everything that I saw on television was completely antithetical to my values, even when it was entertaining. I thought someone needs to make things that are funny, that are entertaining, that are engaging, but that instead of always taking cheap shots at the right, will either A, just tell a story, or B, when it does want to take cheap shots, take some of them at the left every now and again. Uh, and so when I was about 12, I started teaching myself to animate, and I started freelancing probably at 13, 14 on the side, and then when I graduated high school, uh, I started a small business in animation production. When I was 20 on the side, what I began doing was just uploading these short little political cartoons that I made to a YouTube channel that I'd created when I was in high school that had maybe 100 subscribers at the time. And this was not my main bread and butter. This was not the thing I intended to make any kind of a living off of. It was just sort of like a receptacle for my angry rants in animated form when, when I, I felt a need to vent or when there was something I needed to make fun of. And after doing this a few times, I changed the, the name of the channel to Freedom Tunes. And I've just been hacking away at that ever since. I've been very blessed to have many different opportunities come up. So the business has grown along with Freedom Tunes. And now we're, we're in the direction of just creating educational political cartoons and, and political satire for different Catholic, Christian, or conservative organizations. And then the main heart of the business is still this YouTube channel uploading like edgy engaging content that i hope the audience finds funny to lampoon the left and i would say probably about two years ago uh tim and i crossed each other's paths and i, I shouldn't say that actually he did a voice for me in a cartoon maybe back in 2018 2019 and so we were on each other's radar and he invited me out to work on a project with him in in i want to say early to mid 2020 and we just really hit it off uh, before I ever even did his podcast, he and I were just collaborating on, on different funny ideas. 
And then he started bringing me on. The audience seemed to like me enough. So I've been a semi-regular ever since. And I think last year I did about a six-month stint as a co-host. And I'm probably on my second month out here as a co-host now. And so, oh, one, one important thing to mention, just to mea culpa here, when I first started Freedom Tunes, I was like heavily in my libertarian phase, which of course I was because it was 2014. We were all in our libertarian phase uh, at that point in time. And I don't mean that in a condescending way to denigrate all libertarians because some of them are very based. Like I think Dave Smith is fantastic. I think the writings of Hans Hermann Hoppe are absolutely wonderful. And I would say even indispensable to conservatives and trying to understand how societies build and, and maintain themselves in the modern world. And so I'm not one of these, I'm no longer part of that club, so I have to bash it all the time, people. But I, I certainly think there are, are many issues with the libertarian prescriptions for how we should form our culture and society. No, I hear you. I, I do bash libertarians probably a little too much <laughs> on the timeline, but I do it out of love. You know, the, yeah. these are the people that are kind of close to, you know, like I was telling Dave Smith when I was talking to him on his podcast, you know, like you said, Hans Hermann Hoppe, Hans, Hans Hermann Hoppe these are the kind of people that lead you to, I think, uh, kind of more based understandings yes. of political power. They, they're a key part of kind of your journey and you don't need to be ashamed about that. You know, no. those, th those are, those are stepping stones that get you to a place you need to be. But if you get stuck there forever, that is a problem, you know? Well, so Exactly. And so the kinds of libertarians who I really will bash are the very milk toast out to lunch libertarians who will say absurd things that don't even line up with libertarian philosophy. Like two people are doing this in the free market. So it's beyond criticism or reproach, which is complete insanity. That's not part of libertarianism, but that's something I hear libertarians say all the time. And it drives me crazy as if like the only matrix for moral analysis is did two adults consent to this? Okay. Yes. Like two adults do need to consent to something. Absolutely. But that doesn't mean once that requirement has been fulfilled, nothing that that action produces or even is intrinsically can't be criticized. Yeah, this is why Hoppe works, you know, physical removal into the plan, right? Yes. Okay, <laughs> yes. And this, this yeah. so this is the thing. There, there, people talk about the libertarian moment and how the mainstream Republican Party is very libertarian. And what they get wrong about this, and this is not me like trying to defend libertarianism because ultimately I, I don't, I just don't think it works and I don't believe in it. But in their defense, what libertarianism says is not we are socially liberal and fiscally conservative. That's an unbelievably absurd oversimplification of their values that doesn't actually map onto anything that they're really saying, at least not the ones with any level of like intellectual prowess who are analyzing the issues and know their philosophy well. What libertarianism teaches, depending on the formulation, is either like non-aggression principle or propertarianism, the idea that all rights are rooted in property rights, which again are not things I agree with, but those don't get you to a position of I'm socially liberal and fiscally conservative because social liberalism doesn't actually work in the long run without a massive welfare state. Yeah, I think that the problem for libertarians uh, who, you know, kind of the more the Mises type libertarians is that that term has kind of entirely gotten away from them. I libertarianism, know. for better or for worse, I know they hate this when I say it, but it's just true. Libertarianism is that guy dancing naked in his underwear at the at the Libertarian National Conference. I'm sorry, it just is. That, like, but that is how people are going to understand it, right? Because right. This is the thing is. Both the left and the right see it that way. The left, and when the left sees that, they don't think there's anything wrong, of course, with the man at a political rally doing that. But they say, like, all right, well, that's the wrong way to promote men being naked in public. It's not a right. room to not He wasn't approach. even wearing any BDSM <laughs> gear. Where, where's, exactly. his, where's his dog mask? Exactly. Yeah. And what yeah. the right says is, like, we don't want men dancing naked in public. And, of, of course, you're correct that 
you know, Dave Smith isn't in love with that. Hoppe isn't in love with that. Uh, but that is how the average person conceives of the, of the ideology. Yeah, and, and the problem is that in the dialectic, the what what the the role that kind of liberal or libertarianism serves is that it always gets the the parts of it that get advanced are always the parts of personal freedom, and the parts mm-hmm. that get left behind are all the ones that would restrict government or control exactly. any of the growth. Of, so all it turns into is a way to wedge open the expansion of the state. Libertarianism exactly. ends up working hand in hand with this. Yeah, I, I would completely agree, and so. I, and I'll mention, like, I just had a, a great two-hour-long pre-recorded conversation with Eric July yesterday. He's an old friend. He's he's also one of these guys who's libertarian, but I think he understands the culture well enough, and his personal values are not like libertarian in the sense that he believes everything that two people consent to is is great, or he buys into this kind of milquetoast social liberalism. And one thing to quote him one more time, to give him one last shout-out, um, is that... Um, Dave Smith said this in his debate with Nicholas Sarwark, who I think Sarwark represents like the worst, most cringy element within libertarian thought, where he was saying, well, look at this massive libertarian victory of getting, you know, drugs legalized or decriminalized. And the point Dave made is that wasn't libertarians who did that. Okay, that was the left. The left is the reason why marijuana is legal in most places. This was not a libertarian victory. This is this is something that happened to line up with libertarian values, but libertarians didn't do it. The, the progressives did. Yeah, and and I think that's true, but at the same time, that's usually the kinds of victories that libertarians will claim, right? Yes, one hundred percent. Right. Yeah, and so I think uh, I th- I think that they kind of fall into that trap over and over again. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. no, it's true. They they will claim that it's just it's misguided because that was not your achievement. Uh, you you the the left happened to want the same thing you wanted. That's why it happened. Yeah, and and uh, I, you know, again, I don't want to turn this into the libertarian back. I know, I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> but 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 just to say, like, I, you know, people, I'll I'll show up on like Tom Tom Woods show or Dave Smith show, and people will be like, "What? Well, I thought you didn't like libertarian." It's like, no, no, no. You, they just, I just I want them to understand the problems with their yeah. the philosophy. These people are often closer are you to. They're part of the problem. <laughs> I might be saying that, yes, but but yeah, no, I just you know they're, they're they're very close to. They're often on their on their journey to a more based understanding of reality, and I just want to help them get there faster. I just don't want them to get stuck along the way. Well, uh, I, so. I think what happens is the the ones who I get along with and the ones who I like are people who have a very solid conception of how an individual person should act, and they embody that in their personal lives. And yeah. so, in that sense, they are that which we would call based, but. <laughs> I don't think they they do enough to uh, engage with the fact that at some level there does need to be a use of of state force, even if just at a local level, to ensure things don't go too off the rails, as they clearly have. As they clearly yeah. have. Yeah, it feels like Hoppe. Again, I love Hoppe because he's the libertarian that actually understands power because he's mm-hmm. using the juvenile's model of power in Democracy of the God That Failed. And so like he, he's the rare libertarian that actually has a functional understanding of power. But he he just kind of rearranges what the state means until its function kind of disappears rather than understanding that, no, it it will continue to exist. It's alongside the family and religion, like the most the most consistent feature of human social organization. It emerges naturally over and over again. So trying to stamp it out is basically trying to eradicate human nature. And anytime you're fighting human nature, you're losing. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
All right, so now that we're done with libertarianism. <laughs> now that we're done bashing, we had to spend our first 15 minutes bashing libertarianism. Yeah. Uh, uh, while while we're also always... expressing that there are some good eggs over there. Right? Yeah, not all. Hashtag not all. Hashtag okay. not all. So, so uh, the thing I kind of wanted to talk to you about today is there's, a, there's another kind of interesting flashpoint uh, being created right now. We're approaching uh, America's most holy month. Ramadan is once again... Uh, upon us the ra- the rainbow uh will will the dominate month of the sacred heart yes 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 yeah. <laughs> so. i want everyone to know that sometimes more so than bashing something ugly it's more helpful to celebrate something beautiful so this june just celebrate the month of the sacred heart you can still bash pride month but but please like just let it be known this is the the month of the sacred heart or june is the month of the sacred heart yes and that yeah there you go so um yeah, so so this is upon us, and as it comes upon us, we're starting to see once again kind of the fissure that exists. I think kind of naturally at the heart of the anti woke movement, we had this kind of uh, coalition of convenience arise. A lot of discarded progressives, a lot of liberal casts off, a lot of uh, classical liberals who once saw themselves in as a having a place in the leftist movement have joined kind of this anti woke coalition with conservatives. Because yeah. they're no longer welcome there, right? As you, we've kind of both said, they they fell off the the spear tip of the revolution. They don't understand how they got here. The the, the conservatives are the only people who talk to them anymore, and they're kind of uneasy standing next to these people. But they'll do it if they have to, because they want to make sure they get back to the 1990s. And all of a sudden, like uh, whenever we get kind of the, this a moment like this, those fracture points start to show because all of these people are like. Oh well, we we don't you know we're not against all of these other celebrations. We're not against recognizing yeah. all of this stuff. We just don't want it to go far enough to where they start like mutilating kids. And it's like okay, mm-hmm. but these are naturally linked things. And and so and that was always to... the intention, by the way. Abusing children yeah. was always the intention of the sexual revolution. If you look back to the work of Alfred Kinsey and his co-authors, they were perfectly clear about the way they felt about pedophilia. Yeah, and, and and this is the the heart of queer theory. This is the heart of people like Foucault. This is a part of people like yes. Butler. I mean, there's that famous. I don't know if you've ever seen the the queer theory bingo where the professor is going through and naming all these passages of of kind of foundational members of uh, queer theory, and they're just all about normalizing, you know, pedophilia. So th- this this is baked into the movement from its very beginning. But you know, we kind of have to pretend it's Marxism or something so that yeah, yeah. Well, so it's, it, it's not real. And there's just there's there's a failure to understand that this was not as if this was not a case of social revolutionaries wanting to break down all of the social taboos that prevented consenting adults from engaging in sexually perverse behaviors while leaving the other taboos intact. The The entire purpose of this movement was to break down all sexual taboo. The ones that still remain are the ones that they are going to try to destroy without without qualification, without a doubt. I mean, th- this has been the goal from the get-go. This began with child abuse. Alfred Kinsey's work included data tables, which explicitly confessed to the abuse of boys, the the rape of children. Many, many young boys were included in, in these data tables. And, and I, I won't get too into detail because it's very sickening. And I, I hate to even utter these things out loud because they're so filthy, but he included data tables that included certain physiological reactions to to being raped essentially and this was published this was out in the mainstream this was not hidden wardell pomeroy is quoted in time magazine in the 1980s as saying that he believed that incest between adults and children could be in his words beneficial kinsey wrote in his book 
sexual behavior in the human female, that the reason children are so shaken up when they're abused is because of the reaction of the other adults, not because of what actually happened to them. This stuff is baked into the movement. And Kinsey's not just some guy, all right? The New York Times referred to him as the father of the sexual revolution. And the reality is, if you're talking about the sexual revolution that happened in the United States in the 1960s, that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. So from day one, the entire purpose of this movement was to normalize pedophilia. And it actually started with pedophilia. This was not some good faith effort, if it could even be called a good faith effort, to try to remove certain taboos that might normalize, you know, adultery or fornication and then eventually sodomy, right? The, the whole purpose of this was no taboos because in the words of Alfred Kinsey, the only aberrant or perverse sexual behavior is chastity. Yeah, and when you're in a situation- Oh, he didn't name pedophilia, by the way. He yeah. said chastity. That's the only perverse sexual behavior. And, you know, there it, it just makes perfect sense. I mean, all these people were warned about where this was going. This is something that, you know, a lot of people on you know, the religious right and things were laughed at for decades about, oh, this is backwards and stupid for you to to kind of notice this, to call, you know, the, there's this slippery slope and pretending like all this is going to naturally lead from one thing to another. It's like, but of course it is, because if these social mores, if these taboos exist, because they've been put in place through traditional values, because they've been put in place because of a particular tradition, uh, a religious tradition, which made these uh, you know things unacceptable. You can't just selectively pull that. You can't just crack the foundation out from under this thing and expect certain pieces of it to remain in place, just floating in midair. You've completely disassembled the rationale that held this stuff in place. And it's only a matter of time before each one of these things falls. And so this is one of the massive issues. People have these inbuilt intuitions, and it's possible that they're innate. It's also possible that on some level, they're socially constructed. And I mean that in a good way, right? Because not all social constructs are bad. Societies are supposed to construct things, yes. right? We should want them to do that. Social construct doesn't equal bad. But that said, people have an intuitive revulsion when they hear about pedophilia. They know it's wrong on an innate level, but... They also can't give you a robust intellectual framework for what the purpose of human sexuality is in a way such that it refutes the possibility of allowing any and all perverse behaviors. And so this was the case with, with gay marriage. I think conservatives and probably more moderate people who were, again, relying on their intuitive revulsion to this repulsive behavior were saying, I know this is gross. The vast majority of people know this is gross. So our argument is going to be this is gross. And it's okay if nobody understands what the purpose of sex is or how our culture should hold to strong and reason-based sexual morals. Instead, it was, this is gross, and I'm going to assume everyone else knows it gro it's gross. Well, over time, right, the, the perverse exposure therapy continues, and that which you consider to be absolutely hideous becomes gross, and it becomes tolerable, and then it just becomes a part of life. And so people were willing to rest on this is disgusting and, and not do the intellectual legwork to say gay marriage is wrong. And in many cases, or that it doesn't exist. And the reason for that is because most of these people were using artificial contraceptives or having sex outside of marriage or doing things which precluded them from recognizing a reason-based understanding of sex. And so they had this wishful thinking that I don't need to straighten out my own sexual behavior in order to thoroughly combat the, the encroachment of perversion. And we're seeing the same thing now. 
as as the left is inching closer and closer towards completely normalizing pedophilia, what's being done is moderates are just assuming, well, this is disgusting and no one is ever going to go for it. I'm sorry, but you're wrong about the fact that no one's ever going to go for it. You're right that it's disgusting, but the story of the last 60 years has been the story of the American public calling disgusting things beautiful. Don't think that won't continue. Yeah, things like, you know, uh, originally the redefinition of marriage was wildly unpopular when it was handed down by judicial fiat. And so now it's considered a fait accompli that, you know, it's impossible to roll back, that it's that it's widely accepted and only in the in the case of a decade or so here. Right. And it's a settled in, issue. Yeah, exactly. And pretending that this can't happen again, that that's going to be the only thing where that occurred is ridiculous. And I think a big thing that people don't think about with this is kind of the way that we shifted a lot of what used to be mediated by the sacred into the realm of the scientific and the rational. I, I did a thread on this uh, on Twitter. You know, we had the the Dodgers game, right? And they had all the this uh, this like satanic, uh, you know, drag show thing that's going to show up at Dodgers games. And people are like, I don't understand. I don't understand kind of why this stuff is, is out there. And it's yeah. like, well, because you because you, it's ugly. Right. Well, and, and because you thought that religion was dead and gone, you you didn't think that there, you know this is a backward thing. This is something for stupid people that they use as a crutch. But it's still here and it's still manifesting itself. And just because you closed your mind to a connection to the metaphysical to the spiritual doesn't mean that it stops because just because you decided to stop paying attention to it. Yeah, and so I think this is something we see with many of the classical liberals is. And by classical liberals, I don't mean actual classical liberals. I mean the people who refer to themselves that way, yeah. the people who think that 2008 was the year when we solved politics and finally figured out how the world should look. And that was embodied in the Democratic Party platform of that period. And anything past that was just too far to the left because, you know, we'd finally reached the end of history. And then the woke lefties came along and ruined all of it. These types have a very confused, two-faced, almost schizophrenic worldview where on the one hand, they're willing to believe that we do need to look at the biological reality with respect to the differences between men and women in certain circumstances where it's convenient. But then we can also hold to this tabula rasa view of how man operates in the world. Everything he believes in is sort of imposed by the external society and authority structure is something that cultures decide for on their own and not something that's built into the nature of man. This is important. Like failing to understand that authority is inherent to human beings, that, that this understanding of the world is literally built into us. It's not externally imposed. The failure to understand that is almost as absurd as a failure to understand the differences between men and women. And it ends up getting you to a place where you eventually will not. Because one of the fundamental authority structures is the family. And the father is the head of the household. And I think one way you can really delineate between a, a true ally in this fight is whether they're willing to say that. I'm not saying there are, there are I'm not saying the only people we can work with are the people who are completely on the same page with us on these issues. I think when we agree with people, we should work with them to get to that point. If you want to know whether someone 
are going to be a long-term ally, and they're going to be willing to embrace the kind of reason-based view of the world that's necessary in order to repair this culture is, can you admit that the father is the head of the household? Can you admit that that is a natural part of the human inbuilt structure of authority? And if they can't, if they hem and haw about it, and about exceptions to the rule that they might find and how you know we should still promote the idea of being a girl boss, then I'm sorry, their shit is weak. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons that liberalism was so easy to subvert uh, was that it basically completely denies human nature and then mm -hmm. attempts to make claims on something it completely denies. Exactly, it, exactly. And and so when when the question is like, how do we define these social categories and how, how do we continue to uphold and maintain social categories, even though we know that there are people who aren't comfortable with them? And your answer to that isn't, well, if the person's lack of comfort has something to do with their own shortcomings, then we try to help them conform to reality instead of indulging them. Then you don't have any ground to say that there's anything wrong with transgenderism. Yeah, it's just that you you currently find it per, uh, personally distasteful, but there's no reason that you couldn't be dis, you know persuaded to to follow along later. Here, you exactly, have yeah, to stand on you. You probably won't find it personally distasteful in ten or twenty years. Right, you don't want to be that guy holding the sign saying no transgenderism in the in you know in the photo in the textbook in twenty years. Right, the exactly. worst thing possible is to be on the wrong side of history. You can't exactly. be one of the Yeah. Well, and this is what happens when you're not rooted in God, because trying to be on the right side of history is a small and petty goal in light of the possibility of being on the right side of eternity. So I think the thing that is really hard for a lot of people, because I hear this all the time, is like, well, why don't you guys understand your allies? Why don't you understand your allies? And I think the answer is. We're not like there. There's there is a conflict of moral visions here, not just against the woke and the non-woke, but just inside even the opposition to the woke. There are those who cannot find a substantive reason to be against wokeness other than they just got recently dis, you know, discarded from the coalition. Mm -hmm. And there are those that really do find that there is an eternal truth that stands against this and that and those are the people that I think are going to mount any kind of substantive opposition, but it feels like there's always this constant uh, tension for those who have at least some connection to that eternal truth to make concessions to those who just uh, got discarded from the liberal coalition in hopes that they're going to somehow like bring these people over and they're suddenly going to have a majority and then they're going to win the, 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 the democratic process. And then they're just going to reverse this whole thing in one fell swoop. And that means we, constantly ratchet leftward rather than having any kind of real opposition. And so what you were describing earlier about there being an eternal truth that people have to be rooted in and the fact that people don't have any firm footing to be able to say that because they don't have any faith and they're more or less just upset that they've been pushed outside of the confines of, of what the left considers to be intellectually fashionable. This is one of the massive fatal intellectual flaws of enlightenment thinking in general. Because it presupposes that we live in a universe well-ordered enough that we can determine truths about reality based on our own observations and measurement of reality, which is an idea we take for granted as modern people. But that's not something that everyone believed throughout all of history. And you, you read ancient pagan literature and you find in many cultures it was believed that the universe was confusing, shapeless, and we couldn't really know anything for sure. It was Christianity that gave people the intellectual footing to be able to say the universe operates based on fixed intellectual principles. 
And that is true of the physical world. And that is true of the metaphysical world. There are things that man is meant to do based on his own nature. In the same way that I can observe the universe well enough that I'm able to now determine that a rainbow is made of light refracting off of water particles in the air. I can also observe man's happiness or misery and determine that that was based on his prior actions. Now, Enlightenment-style thinking, while understanding we can make observations about nature of the kind I just mentioned, becomes much more reluctant to make observations about the nature of man. Because even though it's operating based on principles a person could only possibly have if they believed that the universe was authored by a rational mind, reject the existence of that very rational mind. Because they have put themselves in the place of God. They believe that the world exists and operates based on reasonable principles, but only because they were the ones who discovered those principles. In a way, they view themselves as the authors of that order because they discovered it. So they begin to think that because they observed this, they're the creator of it. And they don't want to observe anything in their own personal lives that might tell them that pursuing instant gratification is not conducive to long-term happiness. And so because of that, they also can't make prescriptions for other people. They're only capable of saying, that's gross. I don't like that. So in the same way that they would scoff at, at their caricature of pre-enlightenment man and say, man could only observe nature in terms of what he liked and disliked and not the rational operations of it. They're only capable of observing human behavior in the exact same way. I like that or that disgusts me and not what's the mechanism behind this? What, what is this conducive to? Does this behavior help man flourish? Is this in line with his purpose? Yeah, once again, it's the appeal to a self-evident truth without the the uh, tradition from which that truth became self-evident. You've, yeah. you've removed the ability to actually make appeals to this, and so everything becomes emotive because there's no longer a shared substrate of like how we understand and how we view the world and how we contextualize all this. You can't really pick a telos for a human if you don't understand the human inside its different relationships between the divine between the family, between the church, between its tradition, between its community. You're not you're not some atomized, completely alone individual. You are someone who is, from the very moment you're born, existing inside, sorry guys, a society. We, we are in a society. <laughs> and, and that context is what gives you meaning. It's what, it's what helps you evaluate truth. And whenever you're trying to communicate with another human being, it's that tradition you're appealing to for them to understand what you're talking about. And freed from that context, all you have left is kind of these vague uh, notions of preference rather than anything that you, you, can, you can actually move forward with logically, any, any kind of system in which you can kind of advance that discussion. Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. And so I, I was speaking to a man by the name of Stephen Jonathan. I've had him on my podcast twice at this point. He's very brilliant. He's actually someone I would really encourage you to have a conversation with at some point if you could, because he'd make a fantastic guest. But 
he and I were having a conversation on our show and he mentioned C.S. Lewis and how C.S. Lewis talks about sort of the first and second things and how when you pursue the first thing, you end up getting the second thing. And they're both good. You, you want both of them. When you pursue the second thing and sort of subvert that order, not only do you not get the first thing, but like you don't even end up getting the second thing that you were aiming for. And so what's happened is people have identified that their social role gives them meaning. Of course, that meaning comes in large part to what you are contributing. And your identity is very largely a product of what you can contribute, what you can give to other people. And we've subverted that. Now, our attempt is to seek out the benefits of having an identity without giving thought to the first thing from which that identity in part or in large part or entirely arises, which is firstly God, the fact that you were created by an all-knowing, all-loving God, and the social expectations that come from the gifts that he gave you. Now it's, well, I, I see the esteem that a person might have as a result of their social standing, and I want that esteem, and so I will pursue the second thing without having grounded myself in the first thing, and then you don't get either. So the perfect example of this that we see today is the esteem of womanhood. Womanhood is such an unbelievably beautiful thing. Well, how do we know that someone's a woman, right? It's, it's an adult human female. Well, well, it's an adult human female. How do we define female? Some lefties argue that's a tautological definition because female and woman are, are synonymous. Okay, well, I like the way Trent Horn defines this. A female is that whose sexual anatomy is ordered towards gestation, and a male is uh, that whose sexual anatomy is ordered towards insemination. Very basic, very straightforward. Also paints a very clear picture of what role that person plays and what they're capable of providing. And ordered towards is the operating phrase because your anatomy can break down, but it's still ordered towards that. So you see the esteem of womanhood. Well, we hold women in high esteem for a very important reason, right? Women create people inside of their bodies. That's unbelievable. There are other things women do. There are other reasons we value women, but let's just look at that. Okay, that is a massive part. It's a massive part of why women have the social esteem that they have, because that's pretty important, also pretty impressive. Well, when you're only looking at that social esteem, when you're only looking at the second thing there or what comes from it, now you as a man want to fit into that category. And it's not because you want to create life. It's not because you're looking at the productive role. It's frankly, in most cases, because you've been sexually perverted either by your own fantasies or the pornography you've consumed, and there's something sexual thrilling about a female identity to you and conceiving of yourself in that identity. So you've taken the second thing without the first thing. We don't have the first thing. And guess what? We don't have the second thing because no one actually holds you in esteem the way they hold a woman in esteem. Okay. They feel sorry for you at best. And at worst, they're angry with you. Now, I think everyone should feel sorry for these people. All right. They, they, they do need our compassion. But to be clear, everyone does. No one on the left truly feels happy for these people. They're pretending. They're pretending. They feel bad for them. If they're even capable of feeling bad for them, if, if they have that level of compassion left. No one says this is a woman, but some people say, I feel bad enough for this person to call him a woman. Well, and, and I think it's because of this entire deracination, de right? These identities are consumer products. You don't have an identity is not something that's ingrained. It's not something that's connected to other things. It's not something that's unshakable. It's something you can wear as a suit. It's a chameleon. You know, you, you can change at any moment because you're not a person who's locked into a particular 
uh, community. You're not locked into a particular gender. You're not uh, locked into a biological sex. It's it's something that you can simply consume and discard, and that's why they have to kind of have to sell these uh, you know these operations as something that's disposable, reversible, right? Because none of this yes. can become permanent. Because if it's permanent, oh well, then there might be some kind of limitation, some kind of inbuilt you know uh, yes. design that you might have to you know acknowledge. And so everything needs to be uh, consumed one day, disposed of the next. You can switch them at will. Yeah, well, and I think this is fundamentally a product of a total lack of maturity. I think. I had, I had an experience right around the time when I turned 20. And I think many men will have a similar kind of experience where something happened to me that caused me to realize that permanency is a factor in life. I think when you're a kid growing up, as long as nothing horribly traumatic happens to you, you don't really understand the nature of permanency. The idea that there are things you, you, know, you, you can't turn back from, like you could actually cause long-term damage to yourself. You lose an arm, it's not growing back, okay? I think that this failure to understand permanency is linked to being juvenile, right? It, when you're a kid, this is this is pretty standard. And I also think when you have a culture where the stories that we tell reset, it creates a bad status quo in people's minds. You watch a 22-minute or 44-minute episode of a TV show where everything is the same at the end of episode the episode as it was at the beginning, regardless of what happened. This shapes the way that people think. And... When it comes to these these surgeries, these operations, let's not even call them that, these acts of mutilation, mutilation, these acts of violence against the body and against the person and against God and against morality, there has to be sold to the person the idea that this is reversible because no one's willing to commit to anything anymore. Now, cutting off your penis, pretty massive commitment, not one you should make. Irreversible. But they have to convince a person that like these things can be undone or, or once you start down the path to do this it can be reversed but at every step of the way irreversible change occurs and so this is in many ways like a fundamental rejection of maturity and we see this i think with the fact that historically in the transgender movement it's mostly been male to female this, this is really important because historically it's been understood that you need coming of age rituals for men because our bodies don't force us to grow up the way that women's do. Like women literally bleed for days out of the month. Their body actually does violence to them. They're constantly at war with their own nature. Men, absent formation, can kind of go along and get along without ever going to war against themselves. And so this is why every society through history has had some kind of set social expectations and rules for men that were only for men because they need that extra push. And I think when a man is struggling to find a masculine identity and he sees that women just very gracefully move into maturity without needing to subject themselves to this kind of warfare while missing the fact that their bodies subject them to that warfare, they want that because they don't realize what it actually is. So they think that by having a female identity, they can just have an identity without working for it because they don't understand what women have to go through on a biological level without any social intervention being necessary. Well, I think they also understand, I think, honestly, the attention that comes with and some of the um, uh, that they're going to get treated with kid gloves. I mean, 
Uh, yeah. Just just cards on the table here. You know, I've got a lot of friends, you know, who were autistic or, you know, kind of on the spectrum. And they've decided this is the way out. You know, they, they've gone through this process because they didn't know how to interact in social situations. They didn't know how to have something that was interesting. They didn't know how to have something that have them stand apart. They didn't know how to, like, make people kind of treat them better and not be so harsh toward them. And what is this? Oh, this is this is kind of a magical identity shield. Uh, I, I used to teach um, and I taught in a Title I school and the kids were really nasty to each other, like really awful to each other. But even like the most aggressive, nasty kid knew that they had to treat the trans kid well because they knew that kid was untouchable. Yep. So you could bully everybody else. You could be merciless to everybody else. But the one kid you couldn't treat badly, the one kid you couldn't make fun of because of something going on with him, something physical, was that kid. They're wearing plot armor. And because of that, there's an incentive that if, okay, I don't know how to hand myself in social situation. I'm a teenager. I'm awkward. I'm, I'm a little on the spectrum. Well, what's the best way out of this? Oh, well, mm -hmm. I'll transition, and then I don't have to deal with this anymore. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it's very real. And sometimes it's even more insidious than that. So I remember when I was in high school, you know, I graduated 10 years ago this June. So this is a little while ago, but it's massive how much social change has happened since then. Really, really quite remarkable. But there was a, there was a gay kid in our school who everyone knew. And I'm sure there were multiple gay kids, but everyone knew this one gay kid because he was the loud activist at the school and he was very nasty to people. I mean, he would say things to other students that no one could hope to get away with saying, right? But if you responded to him the way you responded to anyone else who had just said what he had said, well, now you're in trouble because now you're being mean to the gay kid. How dare you? And so there's also this very antisocial angle, which is I can get away with treating other people however I want if mm -hmm. I'm part of this identity class. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's a large amount of the leftist coalition in general, right? Yeah. Is if if I I get special benefits, I get special privileges. I'm allowed to do certain things, and I'm a, I have an arist. Basically, I'm the aristocracy. I have special yeah. rights that you don't, and I get to kind of treat you however I like because I have these particular markers. And that's the thing about a lot again of of kind of the anti woke center or left. They want to maintain most of those privileges. They want to maintain most of that structure. They see everything up until, like you said, like 2008 as, as just fine. And all of that stuff needs to be protected. And that's why I, I think that the coalition is, is starting to see these, you know, these flashpoints because it, it, be, it becomes clear that these things are linked. It becomes clear to a lot of people that, there, that there's a clear through line of history and logic and kind of moral degradation that comes along these things. But it's really important for those who held these liberal values and want to continue to see that worldview uh, kind of perpetuated that they not notice. It's really exactly. important that these things not be noticed because if they are, then we might start understanding that you can't keep the whole thing together. Exactly. And so I think you and I understand this as a boulder that was pushed down a hill and many left-wingers who have been pushed outside of the coalition say, man, the left made a mistake when the ball kept rolling past the halfway point. It wasn't going to stop. It wasn't possible for it to stop if we are to agree that pushing it down the hill in the first place was a good idea. And you've got to stop the thing. And when you do stop it, 
if you try to hold it in place halfway down the hill, it's just going to start rolling again at some point. Like you have to push the thing all the way back up to the top and then you got to leave it there. And then you got to be hyper vigilant about allowing people to push it down. And the reason I use this analogy is because what we're seeing now is absolutely natural because decay is a part of nature. This is why it's so difficult for the right and so easy for the left to have political victories because a political victory on the left is merely tearing something down that people far stronger and wiser than you built in which you resent the existence of because it reminds you of your own failure to live in line with the ideals of the people who gave you the inheritance that you're squandering. And so leftism is just the intellectual rationalization a person, person engages in to not live a virtuous life. And this is true of basically every left-wing cause. There's nothing noble about it. They try to kind of use the, the pretext of, of nobility. They, they try to pretend as if this comes from some genuine concern for other people. But at bottom, it's always, I don't want anyone to interfere with my ability to fail to contribute with respect to my labor or to restrain me from licentious sexual behavior. And I think at the heart of this, and this is why I hit on this so often, is sexual licentiousness. Because that is the easiest, most surefire way to get a person to stop caring about reason and start caring merely about their own pleasure. And when when people care about that, it's not simply the case that decay sets in. It's that is decay, okay? That is decay, and then it just spreads out from there. Yeah, there's a reason that pretty much every society that made major advancements and had, had a high degree of success had a serious amount of rules built up around this practice, right? Exactly. Be because like you said, if you don't, then you just enter this spiral of social entropy. And the the extropy is far harder. The, the, the erection of the standards, the substantiation mm -hmm. of the tradition, the, the creation of these institutions is far more difficult than the disassembly of them. Yeah, the and erection the left, of the standards and the standards. Yeah, 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 I guess. yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, that one up, yeah. par, I mean, I'm, par, pardon me. I just no, I couldn't no, no, help no. it. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's it's very real, and, and part of why this is so important is because sex is it's all or nothing in this sense. Uh, Carol Wojtyla, Saint Pope John Paul II, said, "As goes sex, so goes the family, so goes the world." This is undeniable, and sex is either one of, if not the most beautiful thing human beings engage in and the most wholesome, wonderful, wholesome, wonderful thing that creates new life and gives to the world and bonds to people and is ultimately productive and the maximally productive thing a person can do in, in some sense. Or it is completely abhorrent and disgusting and perverted. When people see sexual perversion, they don't feel like there's something a little bit wrong with that. I mean, it shakes you to your core. You're viscerally disgusted by it. What is food supposed to do? It's supposed to fuel your metabolism. It's supposed to provide you with nutrients. There's a proper way to eat. And we all know that. And when someone eats in an improper way, we're not thrilled with it. But there's not the same level of disgust as when somebody exercises their, their sexual function in an improper way. There's something much darker about it. And it's because sex is so good and has the potential to create such beauty that it has to be attacked. 
Because when you can get somebody to, to, to rather than subjugate their passions to reason, subjugate their reason to their passions and pursue that which feels good at the expense of their own dignity, you've got a perfect slave. Is this why, and I've seen you talk about this on Twitter and I have too, is this why it's so important for many progressives and even centrists at this point to talk about the 1950s or earlier periods as if they were uh, they were somehow ridiculous. No one was ever happy. There were never intact families. There were never people who owned homes and, and had good families and good churches. And there, there was never a place where you could walk down the street and not have to worry about your kid getting attacked. And you could send your kid to school and, and not have to worry about them you know, getting uh, indoctrinated with like really uh, ridiculous stuff. Is that why? Because they just have to pretend like the past was always so horrible. Because if you acknowledged that these standards worked, if you acknowledge that these structures were important and maintained something important, then they might have to understand that what's happened is not progress, but instead regress. Exactly. Well, I, I don't know if you know this, Arn, but in the 1950s, you might think it was the case that your average man could graduate from high school at the age of 18, start a family, have children and a wholesome life experience, all while working a job that didn't require him to have an obscene level of education and for his wife to be able to stay home and care for those children and for people to reach their personal fulfillment while also having surplus wealth. Uh, everyone was secretly gay and super sad about the fact that they were secretly gay. That's the story of the 1950s. And every single time you discuss the nuclear family structure or even just fighting for the family, recognizing that men and women are different, saying that marriage is not some archaic, outdated institution, what you are met with was, well, you want things to be like they were in the 1950s. In the 1950s, were racist. That was a racist time. This is so funny. The 1950s, those were the bad decade. I don't like that decade. It's a very interesting kind of slogan, kind of rallying cry, kind of bit of citizenism we see from them. The left claims that their main issue with the 1950s is how racist that era was. But Every critique or satirization of the 1950s in popular culture or in academia relies entirely on mocking suburban life in the nuclear family with racism being a more peripheral issue. So we know what bothers the left about the 1950s. Now, I'll add this. One thing the left is very effective at doing is taking something that people know is a little bit off. And honing in on that and then critiquing it on the basis of the things that actually made it wholesome while pushing for that which made it off, made it not quite work. There were issues with the 1950s. So, for example, I think rampant materialism and consumer culture really take off at this point in time. Basically, all of, if not all of, or at the very least, many of the cultural shortcomings that arise when people become too wealthy begin to set in in the 1950s. And there's also an atomization of the nuclear family. Prior to the 50s, it was far more normal to live with your extended family or at the very least close to them. And then in the 1950s, this atomization begins to occur where now people are just within the, the nuclear family structure and they moved out of the cities. There's been de-urbanization. And so people aren't living in the communities that their immigrant forefathers moved to and then remained in. So now they're no longer in touch 
with their ethnic identity and culture. And so in some sense, they've been homogenized. And this actually pushes them away from their religious roots, because for many people, their, their ethnic identity and religiosity are tied together. Now, I think Christianity supersedes ethnicity, of course, and should. And that's one of the great values of it. But you talk to people today, I'm Irish Catholic. I'm Italian Catholic, right? I'm a wasp. Like people will include their country of origin in with their religious faith. And so well, I and think, the, I think, oh, sorry, not to. No, to please, because I'm going to go on for like an hour if you don't interrupt <laughs> me. I'm sorry. You go. Well, I was just going to say that's kind of one of the beauties of Christianity, though, is it can it can be practiced as one faith while taking yes. on the ethnic particularity of the communities in which it's practiced. I'm it, really it, glad you. Yeah, sorry. No, no. Yeah, no, it remains a true faith. It, it retains the truth of, of, of the faith while still taking on that character. And, and, and so it allows, the one thing about Christianity is it can become the faith of many peoples while still allowing those peoples to remain distinct and have their own, you know, their own cultural particularity. Bingo. And, and I'm really glad you said that because I would not have put those words to it, but I think the way to conceive of it is Christianity tells you that your ethnicity is is far from being the most important thing about you. However, it does not erase your ethnicity. It takes it into account. It takes it seriously. It loves it because God created all the different groups of people on the planet. Why would we want to erase that? Why would we want to, you know, destroy that? Christianity recognizes, yes, you can absolutely put far too much emphasis on ethnicity. We've seen people do that throughout history. But to put no emphasis on it is is also equally foolish, right? Because God created different groups of people and he engineered the circumstances that led to different cultures arising. And no, not all cultures are equal. We should be willing to engage in cultural critique. But that said, it's okay for people to be different. It's okay for cultures to be different. And this is one of these things when the left would talk about multiculturalism that they would say. And it was one of the things that resonated with people because intuitively we know this is true. Like we know it's it's good for different cultures to get along, but to also remain distinct. We we know that, and we know that it can be good for there to be crossover too. But we we kind of end up in this all or nothing space today where it's culture is all that matters, and this should be you know the dominant factor in determining identity, and also culture is pointless. Let's erase it. We need to homogenize. Yeah, the, the less understanding of multiculturalism is uh, cuisine, right? Yes, like we, we yes. Have, we a consumer have... product. What exactly. you consume. Culture is about what you consume and not what you give. Yeah, we we all have to believe exactly the same thing about every social issue, every political issue, mm -hmm. every moral issue. But we can go eat at a Thai restaurant or a Mexican restaurant or you know Polish restaurant, and that's the that's the amount of cultural particularity you're allowed. Nothing that's actually existential. Nothing that actually would make you say not a servant of a particular corporation or a particular government. <laughs> exactly. Right? But well, all those things we have to be in unity about. And we've seen this happen on a massive scale just with how corporate America has homogenized the United States by itself. We don't even have to talk about like different ethnic groups. We can just talk about the fact that in the U.S. we had – you can almost call them proto-ethnic groups or like different states operated through our history until you know between 50 and 100 years ago almost as different countries. I mean and prior to the Civil War, people really did see their state as – that which they were patriotic to in a way which they don't today. Yeah, there's a, there's and, a reason that Lee sides with Virginia, even though he was the shoe in for the commandership of the Union. It's exactly. because he's a Virginian first. That's why they were these United States, not the United yeah, States. That's a very good way of putting it. That's And that's exactly right. I mean, 
people in their own individual states had their own state identity and in a way which was very wholesome. Nowadays, you know, man, even just 20 years ago, right? When I was a kid, we would go on vacation. You know, my dad would pack up the van and take me and my brothers across the country uh, over the summer, every uh, like every other year. We'd go on like a two, three week long road trip. And so much homogenization had already occurred by that point in time. But you could still find unique local shops. Like if you were in an area, maybe instead of a Walmart, there was a different kind of department store that was local and was unique to that region. They were scarce even then, but now you don't get any of that. Like there's no mom and pa shop left. It's the, the only thing that allows you to tell the difference in many cases between Georgia and Illinois and California are climate and socioeconomics. But the way people talk is roughly similar or becoming much more similar. Accents have melted away in many areas. They're buying all the same products. They're consuming all of the same art. So much uniqueness is lost. I find that to be very sad. No, I agree 100%, but I think that is what is necessary for the state to centralize power. If they want yes. to be able to propagandize people with the same message, if they want to be able to put everyone under the same rubric of control when it comes to public schools or corporations, then you need everyone homogenized so that your managerial techniques can be applied uh, routinely so that there aren't yeah. any any moral tastes, any cultural tastes, any... Uh, any actions that would put you outside of a very small uh, defined set. This managerialism is all about predictability, right? Every person needs to be predictable. You need to be able to control everyone's reactions. You need to be able to plan for everything. And so any kind of individualization in communities is a, is a problem because it runs up against that. And so I think that that has to happen because otherwise it becomes difficult to kind of manage the, the, the nation, then eventually kind of a global empire at scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and so I think what's sort of being touched on here is the fact that what the United States did to itself and all of its subcultures, had it conquered another land equally large and done the same thing, we would consider that one of the most horrific uh, examples of colonial cultural erasure that could happen in the modern world, right? And I, I add like in the modern world because obviously like we're not going around murdering people from different states. I get all that. But the kind of cultural erasure is something that we just take for granted as having happened. And people almost don't even lament. They don't think about. Um, but it's very, it's very real. And recently I was in Texas for a conference and it was unbelievably fun. I mean, there's still an identity to Texas that I think other states have very much lost. And it's not a perfect identity. I think just like the rest of the culture, uh, there there was somewhat of like an encouragement of debauchery and licentiousness. But there's this lightheartedness to, to Texan culture even now. And it leans into its own tropes. It doesn't see them as something to be ashamed of or something that has to be dealt with ironically. They don't care. They're just doing their Texas thing. And... I find that beautiful and it's telling that Texas is so often ridiculed because their culture is different and it's weird. And the thing that the, the, the leftist multiculturalist always argues is we shouldn't make fun of other cultures. But of course, now that we actually do have one culture we can identify, which is separate from the, the massive homogenous, you know, 
progressive fascist American culture, we have to make fun of it. We have to ridicule it. It's stupid. It's lowbrow. It's, it's backwater. It's low class. And you and I have talked about this, right? Uh, you made a good point about this. The coding of basic understanding of natural law as being low class. That's what poor people believe. You're against gay marriage and transgenderism. That's what stupid poor people think. Well, and that's because it's something that's observable and you don't have to do a lot of education or rationalization to understand it, but you do have to pile on a large amount of ideology to deny it. And so mm -hmm. the overeducated become those most easily persuadable when it comes to denying the natural uh, order of things because so they're I, the only ones. Yeah. Oh, no, no, I, no, no. I, I, I hate to keep interrupting you. Please continue. No, no, no. Go ahead. I just there was there's, there's some ideas only so absurd. Uh, some ideas so absurd only an intellectual could be brought to believe them. Right. right? It's very it's a very real phenomena. Um, and I think there's something to that. And I think there's also something to the fact that when you break down the social conventions that we had so many social conventions surrounding wealth, surrounding faith, surrounding sex, surrounding our daily interactions. And what the left said was these social conventions are born of some primitive part of us that needs to die. And then when they what they when they stripped away those those social conventions, what happened was those social conventions stopped restraining the parts of us that are ancient and that will always live, but which do need to be restrained. And one of those conventions is people will, without the proper social programming, without a, a firm footing in morality or a properly formed conscience, they will look down on people who have less than them. So when you tear around the so when you tear down the social conventions surrounding wealth, you return people to that ugly part of their nature in many circumstances. So this is why we see this critique, right? When people make fun of the Southern accent, what they're, what they're basically doing is they're making fun of people for being low class, right? They're saying this person's poor. They're not part of my economic bracket. And so much of the comedy we see surrounding like rednecks, quote unquote, is all punching down, but no one cares. That doesn't upset anybody. I, I wouldn't consider myself obviously like an evangelical. That term isn't usually applied to Catholics, but I find it very interesting the the difference between the way evangelicals are regarded and, and the way that wasps are regarded. Like, they're both Protestant. What's the difference between an evangelical and a wasp? An evangelical even actually is, believes in Christianity. Believes it! Exactly! Yeah. Right. Exactly! There's a reason that Southern Baptists still actually have prohibitions against, you know, immoral things and mainline Protestants are all by, bought into it 100%. Exactly. Exactly. And so, evangelicals were the Christians who actually believed in Christianity because they were stupid and poor. And wasps were people sophisticated enough to know that you shouldn't not believe in God because that's weird, but you shouldn't really make any changes to your life because you believe in God. The trick is to believe in God, but not really care what he thinks. And Progressives never made as much of a conservative effort to make fun of wasp culture, and that's because in many ways progressivism was born of wasp culture, even if it doesn't want to acknowledge those roots. And so evangelicals are constantly torn apart and they're made fun of because look at these, these stupid, uneducated Southerners who don't think that sodomy is beautiful uh, or, or who believe that like the purpose of the, the anus is to defecate and not to... Um, well, let's not get into detail, right? Their lampoon for a basic understanding of the way human beings are in morality 
but we can feel wonderful about our absurd worldview because you know we're educated and we're wealthy. And I, I just want to hit on that. The, the, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant is not relentlessly bashed and not viewed as public enemy number one the way the evangelical is. Nope. Did I lose you there for a second? Yeah, I, th I think we might have lost each other. Oh, okay. No, I got you there. You're, I can hear you now. Mm -hmm. You're saying that they're not uh, viewed the same way as the evangelical because... Because the evangelical actually believes. And, and by the way, let's not pretend that the fact that the evangelical actually believes is totally unlinked from the poverty of the average evangelical comparatively to other Americans, right? I mean, there's a reason Christ told us that it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. So when the left makes fun of poverty, there's actually nothing ironic about that. Like they're they're given their worldview, they should make fun of poverty. Because they believe that the solution to all of the world's problems is to properly arrange matter. Th that is the actual core superstition of leftism and of Marxism. That if we move the material things of the world around in such a way that economic resources are distributed more equitably, we bring about the end of history. Well, and I think, you know, because, because the class situation didn't work out in the West that the way it did in other nations where uh, Marxism kind of took more of a hold, they understood that it had to become social engineering instead mm -hmm. of maybe economic engineering. And so even though we do see the economic engineering, it's almost become secondary. It, it com comes after the social engineering has been achieved. So mm -hmm. once you've got the, the, the social engineering properly lined up, then you can convince people to do all the economic engineering that's supposed exactly. to bring about this miracle. But yeah, I agree with you that this is, this, this is the lie. And, and I don't think it's just a lie at the heart of Marxism. I think it's the lie at the heart of liberalism because liberalism yes. believes in, uh, again, kind of that blank slate. It believes in the, the ma infinite malleability of people that equality is achievable, but it's not. Um, and you know, all the social and economic engineering in the world will not make everyone equal. Uh, and all Marxism does is call liberalism on that lie and say, we've got a better way to do it, but it's also a lie. Exactly. And so, no, I think you're right. And I, I appreciate you saying that because I should also draw that distinction as well. And I should acknowledge that similarity, which is that both enlightenment liberals and progressive leftists believe that all the world is, is its material elements. There's no such thing as spiritual warfare. God's not real. And if he is, he's so removed from our day-to-day -day life as to be completely irrelevant. So whereas the Christian recognizes the logos moves in history. Christ is truth. Not just that Jesus was a teacher who had the truth, that he is truth. Like God is truth. The truth is not some mere abstraction. You don't get to deny the truth because then you're actually denying Jesus Christ. And instead, what Western society has decided to believe and what it believes now, what it has abandoned those morals for is all that exists is the material world. And the way we will solve all of our problems in bringing about heaven on earth is by rearranging matter. We just have to keep rearranging matter until we get to the point where we have reached the end of history and everyone's perfectly cared for. And we're no longer subject to the natural consequences of our actions. And what the liberal says is this should be done mostly by the free market. And then maybe they'll embrace some form of moderate socialism. What the Marxist says is 
well, actually, no, you need total social control to be capable of, of something of this. And they're correct in the sense that if such a goal were possible, which even by that frame, I mean, that, that's insane. It couldn't be. But you would need massive oversight right. to rearrange matter in such a way that you brought about utopia. Yep. Because the, the truth is, no amount of rearranging matter is enough to move the heart of man. You need grace for that. And you're not in charge of who gets it. Yeah, God see, is. you can pray. You can you can pray. You can try to merit graces. You can you can beg God. You can do fasting and abstinence and penance. But ultimately, this is not a question of how much we've moved material around. This is how much has man moved his heart because he has responded to the graces of God. Yeah, C.S. Lewis says, "I believe in Christianity like I believe in the sun because it's the way that I see everything else around me." Mm -hmm. And exactly. uh, yeah. And, and when you have worldviews that I think are stand in such opposition to each other on such a fundamental level, it's hard for them to to kind of work together in that way. But let me ask you, that I guess, before we move to the questions of the people here, because they are stacking well, yeah, up absolutely. and I don't want to keep you forever. But uh, before before we move on, let's get to the actual question, you know, answer of, of the question of, of the subject of the podcast, I guess. <laughs> Do you think that the anti-woke coalition can hold together or will these differences, will these fundamental differences in moral visions pull it apart as it tries to push back against what's happening with progressives. Nothing that is not rooted in Christ can hold together. I firmly believe that. And again, just going back to what I said a moment ago, Christ is truth. It's another way of saying the same thing. And ultimately this isn't rooted in truth. However, is the untruth that it's rooted in still mixed in with enough truth to withstand the untruth being forced upon it by its enemies? That's a complicated question. What I will say is the best strategy for victory is for people to adopt the truth. I think it's perfectly good to work with these people when that can be beneficial, when it can help us move the, the cultural goalpost in the right direction. However, the problem is, Many of these former liberals or people who the left left are unfortunately individuals who just haven't gotten enough exposure therapy to the far left way of life. If you give it a little bit more time, they'll be sufficiently you know, inculcated in this perverse way of thinking. And we saw this happen. So in 2014, 2013, around that time, when the anti-SJW YouTube coalition began forming. And this was pretty much around Gamergate. Mm -hmm. This was kind of where this all began. There were many people on the left who said, look, I was, I was liberal and I believe in equality between the sexes. You know, people who would never say that the father's the head of the household. And they were saying, well, we need to fight feminism because, you know, it may have destroyed the family, but now it's affecting video games. So we got to get serious. Well, all of those people, or, or very many of those people, they, they went in one direction or the other. Many of them did actually become conservative. That's great. Yeah, you look at someone like Carl, Carl Benjamin had a very different path than, say, like Shoe on Head, right? Those exactly. Are, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and some of them proved to merely be patients who had not yet received enough exposure therapy, and now they're completely on board with all of the progressive causes. And, nope, and this is I why I said I had a long conversation. Sorry, I just want I had a long conversation with Tim Poole and Lauren Southern about this a few weeks ago where I was 
trying to impart and communicate. It was a little bit of a debate, but we should work with these people, but we have to know who is and is not a hero. Yep. No, I think that's absolutely right. And it's a tool. It's a, it's a skill. It's a, that's going to be essential going forward. If, if you don't want to watch, uh, if you don't want to watch this whole thing, get co-opted or completely uh, dismantled in any meaningful way, there's a reason that some of these people are bucking up against say these boycotts is because, you know, Oh, we can't do anything that's actually effective. Oh, I don't want to actually be seen as someone who opposes any of this stuff. I only wanted to do this when I get to, you know, cry <laughs> about getting deplatformed or, you know, losing my yeah. free speech. Yeah. Bringing it full circle back to the libertarians, one of the uh, one of the good ones, as I like to say, um, Robert P. Murphy, the economist, I follow him on Twitter, very funny guy. He was tweeting in response to people who were upset about the target boycott. And they were they were saying there's basically a libertarian saying that libertarians shouldn't promote boycotts. Yeah. And he was laughing. He was like laughing. I can't remember exactly what he said in reply to, to him, but it, it was something like, oh, I, I wish I had it because I'm not going to even come close to doing it justice. But of course, the, the whole joke at bottom is, wait a minute, like boycotts aren't libertarian. That's the one thing libertarians claim we can do or they, like people are allowed to do. Like We're not supposed to run to the state. OK, so surely we can boycott Target. But no, you're only supposed to boycott social conservatives, right? Yeah, all of a sudden it becomes very clear what the agenda actually was in the first mm -hmm. in the first place. But mm -hmm. all right. So before we go over to the questions of the people, Seamus, I'm sure most people have seen your work. It's everywhere and it's very good. But just in oh, case they you. don't know, uh, where should they find your stuff? So I'm on Freedom Tunes, youtube.com slash Freedom Tunes. But we also have a website, which I would encourage you to bookmark in case YouTube ever deletes us someday. That's uh, just freedomtunes.com. We, we post all of the videos there. And also we post special videos on the Freedom Tunes website once each week. So so there's almost 50 videos now that are only available on the Freedom Tunes website, but the the catch is you have to be a supporter to watch those. So if you become a member at freedomtunes.com, you'll get behind the scenes stuff and some special perks and you'll also get to watch one extra video each week that people who are just subscribed to the main channel don't get to see and there's like 50 of them already there so you'll have you know quite uh, a, a lot of, of catching up to do to entertain yourself for a while. I think it's worth it. Absolutely. All right, guys, we'll make sure that you check all of that out. And let's go ahead and check out the questions of the people. Jacob By the way, sh sh oh, I'm go so sorry because this is my millionth time interrupting you. This is a very bad look, but <laughs> my podcast is called Shamer. It's on Rumble uh, and it's called Shamer. Check that no, out. Absolutely. Get all the plugs in. That's what that time was for. Absolutely. All right. So uh, Jacob here for $10. Uh, number one, Papist Potato. Biden bops and Chris Cucker playing Baker Street for the win. Oh, uh, that's uh, that's a classic, man. Chris Cucker playing Baker Street. That was a video I must have made back in like 2016, 2017, maybe uploaded in 2018. But uh, that was a fun one. I was just it was just a little live action video I did where I was playing a white knight. Um, and his name is actually not featured in the video or no, I don't say it, but it's just sort of in the background on the computer screen. So I'm glad he caught that. I was like, wait, Chris Cucker, what was that? And then I remembered, oh my gosh, that's what I, <laughs> that was what I had that character's like Facebook profile picture say his name was. I'm glad you like Biden bops too. Uh, that was a fun one. I think we're overdue for another music video. Nice. All right. And weirder, uh, uh, creeper weirdo for $5 Seamus. Have you ever watched or read the symbolic word? You kind of talk like Jonathan uh, Pajau, I believe, is uh, the guy who hosts that one. Here's the thing. I will take that as a massive compliment because everything I've seen from him has been absolutely brilliant. And I think you're being way too kind to me. <laughs> I, I haven't seen enough of his work. Does he interrupt people all the time and go on for like an hour? Sorry. Uh, he's. I, I think he's fantastic. I've seen some of his work. Um, I've probably seen three or four of his videos. 
And I really should watch more because I found all of his observations to be very resonant. One thing he said that there's two things he said, which I'll repeat now, which is people ask about young earth creationism. And they say, do you really think the world is six to, to 8,000 years old? And what he says is like everything relevant to us is it's fair, fair point, right? Like everything that human beings can conceive of in terms of society, uh, all of our social structures are understanding like pretty much goes back to, to about that time. Obviously you get into evolutionary biology that becomes more complicated, but you get the point. I don't think that refutes anybody said he also made this point about how Neil deGrasse Tyson and these other leftists try to deconstruct, but they only go one layer deep. And I don't know that I'll, I'll do justice to his full point here, but he was talking about how, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson will say something like happy new year. January 1st has no astrological significance. It's just the earth making one rotation around the sun. So, so he's, he's taken us one level deeper in deconstruction. Okay. But he stops there. Like he doesn't continue to deconstruct and say like, well, what, like maybe we should deconstruct why it would need to be astrologically significant. Like maybe we should deconstruct the words you're using to even make that statement. Maybe we should deconstruct the, the entire purpose of saying something like that, but they, they just go one level deeper and then feel very smug and satisfied. And instead of asking a question like, why don't I deconstruct my own motivations for wanting to do this? Why don't I like further deconstruct the language I'm using or, or like, I guess the underlying social ideals that tell us that this deconstruction is valuable. Yeah, no, there's a, the Alistair McIntyre is a philosopher and he has a great book called after virtue. And in that book, he you know kind of points out that every rebel who wants to critique uh, kind of uh, the, the morality of uh, maybe Christianity or the traditional world always the one thing they don't question is whether or not they have the language to actually critique it where the language they have actually came from they're always willing to just go to the the direct critique of the uh, of the society but never think about the fact that they're using the society's own moral framework uh to even process that in the first way the first place and they don't doubt that they have the capacity to do that but uh Chris, but yeah i'm sorry good no 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 you go ahead i was gonna interrupt you i i, I thought you were done but uh, yeah it's just but i was gonna say uh, yeah everything i've only seen pajau really in in conversation with others on other people's podcasts I, I haven't watched a lot of his own solo stuff but everything i've seen from him is, is very good and i think uh he does a great job well you have to remember is christianity is always critiqued for not being christian enough that's it like i i, I criticize communism because it in no way shape or form maps onto reality in a meaningful way that's why i critique it the critique of Christianity is like, okay, this is all well and good, but you're not actually doing it. Okay. Well, if it's all well and good, why don't you try? Oh, okay. You don't want to. Because it's hard? Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Not not left wanting. Found uh, left uh, found difficult and left untried, right? Amen. Yeah. Uh, Creeper Weirdo here for $2, the sex, sexual revolution and its consequences. Uh, Have yeah, been a disaster, disaster for the human race. Yeah. Cue your Ted Kaczynski meme. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Paladin, uh, YYZ for $21. Thank you very much, sir. The anti-woke coalition has no chance of succeeding if they have to defeat <laughs> the alt-right in a logical debate against Or McIntyre and his guests in every other area of life, they win. Uh, yeah, obviously these are, uh, people who usually have not had significant parts of their worldview, their underlying worldview challenged. Uh, and so they kind of, again, just assume that there's this self-evident truth and everybody on the woke left is just ignoring the self-evident truth without asking themselves, how did I disassemble the things that made that truth self-evident? Uh, I did a five episode series on Alexander Dugan with Michael Millerman. It's rather long, but I think it's worth investing in for a lot of people because it gets into, uh, it gets into uh, um, postmodernism a lot. 
and how the left is just completely or kind of the uh, the, the center left is completely disarmed. Liberalism is completely disarmed by postmodernism because they don't realize that they themselves cr uh, created kind of the tool by which meaning would be eroded. Uh, and so they don't really have a way to fight back against any of that because as Seamus and I have both pointed out on this uh, podcast repeatedly, they've already deracinated their, exactly. uh, their culture. They've already deracinated their values. And so they don't really have anything to do or anything to say of meaning uh, or substance when postmodernisms uh, postmodernists point out you you've, you've completely pushed beyond this. There's no longer any leg for you to stand on. Yeah, I'll also add this because you mentioned sort of like the, the alt-right and logical debate. I wouldn't consider myself alt-right, but I ha also have no idea how to define it. It's always used as this kind of vague boogeyman term. Um, I don't know what it means, but I, I used to conceive of it as meaning like ethno-nationalist, but it, that's also not really how it's used. It's thrown around a lot. I think the point is, the point your, your commenter is making is that they they can debate lefties and they can even debate conservatives because most conservatives don't have a firm footing in what conservatism actually means. Uh, and that's that's true. I've seen this happen, dude. I've seen like left wing podcasters like Destiny take conservatives to task on basic stuff like sex and gender. Where you go, How could you as a conservative lose the debate that a man can't become a woman? But I've seen it happen because they don't understand these values. They don't actually understand these principles. Yeah, I think it's really uh, hard. There, there's certainly something beyond conservatism forming. And I made this argument that that conservatism is dead and you have to build something new. Conservatism was about retaining institutions and their values. But all mm -hmm. of those institutions in the United States don't hold traditional religious values anymore. Yeah. And so That's conserving those institutions doesn't have any value. And so you have to show you have to shift focus of one of protecting institutions that no longer hold your values to ones of creating institutions that will hold those values that perpetuate those values into the future. And so I think we're moving from a time of conservatism to a time of building and no one knows what to call that yet. Yeah. Uh, but, but it is, a, it is something I think that is distinct and different from kind of that con, you know, conservatism Inc, you know, national review, you know, uh, weekly standard, kind of thing that got you know pushed around as as uh, right wing in america for decades yeah I, I think that's i think that's right there are certain things we need to conserve i mean when i think of conservatism and what it should mean it's it's conserving the family that's what it should be about and this is why like i'll call myself i guess a pro family uh conservative uh but i would agree with you i mean we can't conceive of this as trying to preserve a Christian culture or conserve a Christian culture. We're actually trying to evangelize a post-Christian pagan culture. Yes, exactly. I agree hundred percent. All right. So let's see another one here from Florida. Henry for $5 is the core of all this insanity. Just people wanting attention. I mean, it is to some extent it's, it's also because a lot of this brings power. I mean, there, there, we, we, we we could go on that could do an entire different podcast on, mm -hmm. on, on what the core of all this is. Uh, but but the ability to garner attention and acceptance is a big part of it. The, the, long the short of this is this is what became elite culture. Uh, and because this is what became elite culture, this is what gives people power. This is what gives people social standing. This is what gives people acceptability. And that's why they want to adopt it. People don't want to just construct, deconstruct traditional values because they want to deconstruct traditional values. They do it because they're being rewarded for doing it. And because it became the dominant culture, that's why people do it. 
and I'll, I'll add this. I think that culture, I think that question is actually a lot deeper than someone might initially hear it and conceive of it as, because when we're talking about a person wanting attention, we're talking about a person wanting to be known. And we live in such an alienating culture. And it's not just the blue haired social justice warrior screaming their head off because Michael Knowles is speaking on campus who is seeking attention. And I don't even know if they're doing it in that moment to seek attention. I think the reason they engage in these perverse lifestyle choices is because part of them like wants to be known and no one's ever given them God or they've never learned about Christ in the proper way or they've rejected their faith. And so there is an attention that they don't understand they're receiving from the divine or they do realize they're receiving it, but they know that they are not living in God's grace and friendship. And so they need everyone else's approval instead. That's a massive part of this. A massive part of this is alienated, lonely people wanting to be known, wanting to be loved, wanting to know that they matter. And because our culture doesn't properly form people's conscience or give them the tools to form healthy relationships or obey God and do what's expected of them, they slip into debauchery and hedonism and perversion. No, I think that's really and, and they ruin their lives. They ruin their lives. I think that's actually a very good point. I think a lot of people bypass that desire for for meaning that's been created by the destruction of more organic communities. Mm -hmm. And so by demolishing those more organic religious communities, those more uh, tight-knit, uh, close-to-home communities, by making sure that everyone is atomized and alone, you increase the need for social conformity on the mass scale because that allows you to feel once again noticed to, to be accepted to be part of it and i, th I think that is a big uh, driver as well mm -hmm. creeper weirdo here for five dollars richard dawkins said he liked the idea of a creator so long as he was a materialist nerd so ai did something good Mm -hmm. I don't quite understand that one. That is so. So he's okay with God as long as God is a nerd. I don't. Maybe simulate. It sounds to me like this is a reference to simulation. oh the simulation. Yeah, no people will do will believe in all kinds of dumb stuff to try not believing in God. Yeah, not admitting that God exists. So it's yeah. like Chesterton said: once you stop believing in God, you don't believe in nothing. You believe in anything. Yeah, and with, with with AI, I, I always laugh at this this idea of simulation because they see this as a more sophisticated approach to understanding religion. Saying that God uses the same tools I use is an unbelievably primitive approach, which pagan cultures have engaged in throughout all of history. God made universe with hammer. God made universe in fight. God made universe through sex. God made universe doing things I do. No, God spoke the universe into existence. That is a profound idea. And I hate to call it sophisticated because I don't actually agree that sophistication is necessarily good. It's a very simple and very beautiful idea. And it's one that, that isn't totally self-evident to humans, which is why it took a lot of a lot of history and doctrinal development and revelation for us to fully understand that. But thinking that God uses a computer like you use a computer. Come on, dude. Come on. Be yeah, imaginative. It, it is a <laughs> it is a very desperate reach. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Darth Calhoun uh, here for five dollars. If you're Catholic, you cannot support liberalism slash Americanism. Read the papal bull of Pius the ninth and Leo the thirteenth. Uh, I'll have to leave that one to you, Seamus. Uh, Kim, Kim yeah, Catholic, I was going to leave it to you. <laughs> well, I'm not refresh Catholic, myself so on those, but yes, yeah. I, I'll have to refresh myself on those. But there's definitely a lot that the popes wrote um, in the the um, industrial era through the 18th, or I'm sorry, through the 19th and in 20th century that do touch on the evils of unmitigated, unrestrained capitalism. And part of it is that it plays into this idea that all we have to do is rearrange material reality until we bring about a, a, a utopia. That's a lot of what capitalism says. That's a lot of what market thinking says that is thoroughly critiqued. And also what Catholic thinkers uh, have said 
writing in response to the Industrial Revolution is that the excesses of capitalism uh, will invariably lead to communism. That's something Marx was actually right about. Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, he was he was certainly right that uh, uh, that there are there are certainly issues that will lead to particular outcomes. I don't know if he was right that that will never lead to to communism just because all of the communist revolutions happened in poor yeah. places. <laughs> so, he, but, but no, no, this is the thing. Marx was wrong about how it was going to happen. Marx right. thought that capitalism was going to crash under its own weight and there was no way people could be as productive as we are today or that we could amass as much wealth as we have today. And so wealth would just become so centralized that everyone would become poor and then they would revolt. That didn't happen. But what did happen was people got rich and lazy and uncaring enough to allow their culture to become entirely subverted. Um, and that's what happens, right? The, the, the population begins to only conceive of things in material terms. And once you do that, Marxism is just a step away. Yeah, uh, weak men make strong uh, make hard times. Yep. All right, and Darth Kilhoon here again for $2. Uh, Catholic affirms truth, liberalism denies truth. Based. 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 <laughs> All right, guys. Well, I think we made it through all of our super chats. Again, I want to thank Seamus so much for coming yeah. on. A pleasure absolutely to talk to you, sir. Yeah, this has been fantastic, man. I'd love to do this again at any time. I would also love to have you back on my podcast whenever you're interested. Absolutely. No. And everybody, again, make sure that you're checking out all of Seamus's work. I'm sure you already are, but just in case you aren't, make sure you get over there, watch Freedom Tunes, uh, check out the podcast on Rumble. Make sure that you're looking at all that. And of course, guys, if this is your first time on this channel, make sure that you are subscribing. And if you want to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go ahead and go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe to the Orrin McIntyre show. When you do, make sure that you leave a rating or review. That helps with all the algorithm magic. All right, everybody. Thank you for coming by. Had a lot of great questions. A great crowd today. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate Seamus. And as always, we'll talk to you next time.